realistically it's uh, sons and any father figure or person of significance because I take fathers and sons into the bush environment, teach them all sorts of survival skills and how to rub sticks together, light fire, find water, but at the same time around the campfire. We have some good conversations, but I do ask them to try and find something that allows him to connect to something in a scenario where someone was lost. It is about the finding something that is so important to you that you want to get yourself out of that situation and back home. And if you have a very, very strong relationship with a family member, a father, could even be your dog. It's really about allowing that to put the hairs up on the back of your neck, put a lump in your throat and go, oh, I'm going to get out of this situation. I need to think logically. I need to, I need to make sure that I'm making the right decisions here. Welcome to the Beers with a Miner podcast. My name is Mad Mumsy and I've been driving the huge dump trucks in Australian open cup mines for over 10 years now. I wish I had a dollar for everyone who said to me, how does a little thing like you drive those big trucks? Oh, you must be rich. How do I get a job doing that? My mining friends are asked these questions all the time too. This is what started the Mad Mumsy journey to share stories and tips from living a mining lifestyle and to let others know what it's really like. Tune in each episode as I sit down for a relaxed chat, usually over a few beers, with a fellow miner. Women and blokes with various experience, roles and opinions share their lessons and stories with you. Not everyone is cut out to be a miner, but why not? What does it take to thrive and survive in this industry? Now, let's dig in. Get it? Dig. Mining. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Beers with Miner podcast. This is another happy hour episode. Today I'm speaking with Rick Peterson from Men of Change. And Rick is someone that I've met up with on a an online course that we are both going through. It's more than an online course. It's so much deeper. It's coaching. It's inspiration. It's helping us with our branding and stuff. And I just really love the work that he's doing. So in this chat, we delve into ways that men can stay connected to their sons dads can stay connected to their sons and the way that I'm bringing it back to mining is when you go away how our time apart can affect our relationships especially with teenage boys as we all get older things change and moods change and you know they go from wanting to do everything with dad to staying in their room just wanting to shoot things on their computer games and They're not all like that as well, but, you know, some of them want to just go to the skate park or whatever it is for your son. This is what this conversation is about. We also dig into how, as women, we can help men who may be struggling and so much more. But this conversation is a very important one and the services that Rick is offering at his Men of Change movement really is awesome and you you need to check it out menofchange.com.au and all the links will be in the show notes madmumsy.com forward slash beers 72 you can see those while you're listening in most apps as well so maybe it's time to start planning a weekend away with your son out in the bush backs back to basics 
reconnecting at the grassroots, you know, talking about survival, all sorts of things like that. So women, listen in as well, because I think you can relate to this just to find out a bit more how these creatures called men and our sons work and how we can help them, which will then help all of us. Okay, it's time to dig into this episode. I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Cheers. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Rick Peterson with an E, not Peterson with an O, which we just I just figured out because I didn't send it the link to the correct email address. So when you're searching for Rick Peterson, it's with an E, Peterson, from Men of Change Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's interesting you talk about the E N and O N because, as we'll find out through the podcast, I spent many years in the military, and when I signed up to the military back in 1982, um, I got an extract from my birth certificate to get proof of who I was, and the extract came back as Peter Son. So I actually went through my military career career as Peter Son. The rest of my family is Peter Son, and I'm Peter Sen. <laughs> so spanner in the works there, but uh, hey, nothing wrong with a kink in the family tree, eh? Yeah. We've all got one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, great oh. to be here. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. No worries. I'll just um, let my listeners know how we met, which yeah. is quite interesting. It's the first time that I've had someone on the podcast like this. So we're both going through a business coaching program at the moment through KPI Queensland, key person of influence, part of the DENT program. And um, we've spent quite a few days together hanging out on video conference calls online. And and so I've been hearing about your business, you've been hearing about mine, and I just felt like when you did some of the shares about what it is that you do, that it could be really valuable for people in the mining industry. And so I sent you a private message and said, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And here we are. Yeah, it was it was funny when we were having those quiet chats. I mentioned to you later, it's like being in a classroom and sending notes across a classroom. Hey, do you want to chat later after the meeting? And I was expecting to get a, a virtual feather duster or something or a, a whiteboard duster thrown at me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Dark, my, dark <laughs> like throwing shit again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, and uh, no, it is interesting. It's a it's a great it's a great platform to be able to hear a lot more about what people do outside of our own lives we often become a bit i suppose self-focused don't we and uh to hear there's so many people out there with passions that they're pursuing and uh it's really good to help help drive that so yeah as as you do it's um it's it's great and inspirational to hear what you do yeah oh thank you thank you yeah some of the people on there i'm like (laughs) they're killing it (laughs) and other people who are really just starting out with an idea and yeah it's it's really inspiring. I love it. And the days go so fast. Like we're doing, what, nine till four sitting on a computer. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's over already, you know. I need yeah. a few more hours. Oh, lucky yeah. we've got tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not my uh, not my natural environment, as you, uh, as you well know. Yeah. Yes, which we will get into. But before we start, I, yeah. as this podcast is called The Beers with a Minor Podcast, I like to start these happy hour episodes with my guests sharing their favourite beverage and their best time to enjoy it. 
It could be beer, wine, spirit, or perhaps even a cup of tea. What is yours, Rick? Well, I, I, I like beer and I like wine, in particular a red. Um, if I was to choose a beer as a mainstay beer, I'd probably go two years old, something dark, generally always something dark. There's a lot of good mm-hmm. ones out there. But uh, as a bit of a fallback, I'd say two years old. And if it was a red, I'd probably go a pepper jack um, if it was to buy a nice wine to really enjoy with a lovely dinner with the wife, I'd go a pepper jack. A pepper yeah. jack. Now, do you put ice blocks in your red wine? No, that's just being ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> I do. Can you tell that that's what I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still ridiculous. Yeah. No, I, I uh, very much room temperature. I think you just lose so much of the flavour if it if you cool it down. It's the same with the dark beers, like the two years old and things. I. I'm not English and I don't think I've got too much English in me, but I don't think it's about having um, a, a warm beer, but certainly a cold beer, it loses so much too, especially in the darker beers. I, I like them just not super, super cold. Yeah. Hmm. See, my reasoning, which my listeners know, is room temperature when you're in central Queensland is yeah. it, it's bloody hot. <laughs> it's like having a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. yeah so cut like ice yeah. blocks. Couple of ice blocks, and then the water melts, and that's how I get my water intake for the <laughs> for day. The day. <laughs> but when we start talking about survival, we'll, we'll revisit this subject of water intake for a day. Eh? <laughs> okay, Mad Mumsy needs to know more about water. Um, yeah. Yes, and our lovely Catherine is on to me about that. Just so you know, from the KPI yeah. group. <laughs> yeah, good. All right, um, let's dig into the conversation. Do you get it, Rick? Dig mining. Oh, well done. Lovely little uh, – have you used that one before? Only 71 other times. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Episode 72. Sometimes I forget, but I always laugh and I still crack me up. I don't – people are probably going, oh, isn't she over it yet? But it is yeah. It's like a dad joke, but uh, from uh, – yeah. <laughs> it is. The other side of the gender, yeah. Okay, so um, let's start off with – why you started Men of Change Australia, which hmm. I have spoken about in the intro. So um, let's yeah. just dig right into it, literally. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's an interesting journey. It's not one that um, just started at one point of catalyst, if you like. I I grew up in a fairly dysfunctional childhood. My, my dad, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, was a minor, uh, but my – Going back a little earlier than that, my dad was a lighthouse keeper initially, and so we lived on a little remote island off the southeast coast of Tasmania called Tasman Island. Uh, funny enough, my second son is called Tasman. Uh, but when we left the island in '67, uh, dad went and worked underground for a company called Renison Bell in the west coast of Tasmania, uh, and he was a he was a hard man. He was a big man. Uh, he used to love to fight. He used to uh, put on and host a lot of the local boxing in in uh, in the local area of Rosebury. And ended up travelling around Australia with a bit of a, bit of a boxing troop doing bare knuckle fighting. So he was a, a, a big hard man, and big hard men often like to drink. And I would believe that uh, it, it probably was the, the the drink in my early lives that separated our family. So I was about six years old as the uh, wheels fell off the family cart, so to speak. 
and uh, the welfare stepped in, and we all went all went to the four winds. So there was six siblings, um, and Dad took off from uh, Tasmania and headed over to Mansfield in Victoria, and was working in the A one uh, mine there, the gold mine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, but uh, I never really saw him again. I saw him probably on two occasions very briefly, one shortly after joining the military and uh, then probably his funeral. So I never really knew my father that well, um, an absent father. So as I progressed through my life and, and quite a few years of the military, which we can probably talk about shortly, um, when, I, when I got out of the military and I had settled down and had my own two boys at that's probably a point of catalyst when it dawned on me that I now have the responsibility of uh, two sons, um, obviously three years apart. And I sat down one day and decided I really needed to think about what sort of father I was going to be to the two boys. And it was actually difficult to sit there. I remember sitting there with the pen thinking, what sort of dad do I want to be? And nothing was flowing. And I think it was my wife said to me, um, what what sort of father don't you want to be? And I look back and I thought, well, I don't I don't remember really ever wrestling with my dad or kicking the footy with my dad. I only have probably about six clear memories of growing up with dad. So one of them was, and I talk about football. I love my I love my football, but um, I remember getting one I of got, those. Yeah, I got my hand up. I got a question. Yeah, what sort what sort of footy? Real footy or? What yeah, yeah, real football, AFL. Uh, yeah, boy, yeah. <laughs> okay, I <laughs> yeah. shall allow you to continue. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh no, <laughs> who's who's your team? <laughs> oh, see, that's probably uh, that's probably where we'll differ. Um, I heard recently that the confectionery company of Allen's have just recently taken all the you know those ju- um, juby teeth that you can get in the packets of sweets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently they've taken them out because it's offending all the Collingwood supporters. So I am mildly offended that they've taken the uh, teeth out. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a Collingwood supporter. You're a Collingwood supporter, so you're the enemy, yeah. right? So I'm the yeah. Crows and the Lions. Yes, I have two teams. Oh, yeah. Very controversial. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so I was born hating Collingwood. I was actually born hating Victorians. Um, yeah, wow. Brain- yeah. Brainwashed at birth because I'm South Australian. So That's a harsh um, word, a hate, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's what my dad used to use it as, yeah, speaking yeah. of dads. You know, you, I grew up with... My dad couldn't have boys, but he had two of the biggest tomboys you've ever seen. We raced motorbikes. Yeah. We end up working in the mines. We end up, you know, yeah. I love cricket and footy and politics and all the things he does. So Yeah, well done. I'm, I'm really yeah. close to my dad. So Sorry, yeah. I did interrupt there. I carry on. No, no, that's all right. And I remember one of those, just <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a sad story, but it's one I reflect on a little bit is, um, you know, those plastic footballs you could get years ago. They were literally just a dark brown chocolate-coloured football, super thin plastic. I remember that being my first gift. I must have been five years old. And I took it outside. It excited anything that had what resembled a football. And I kicked it. This is in the backyard of the little Rosebury, Rosebury home. And it went up in the air and it came down on an upside-down turned piece of timber that had a six-inch nail sticking out of it. And my very first kick at a football, it went and just – that was it. Oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't put me on football for life. But, uh, yeah, uh, no, I like the footy. I ended up going on to uh, coach uh, my both my boys' football team for a while in the, in the later stage. But getting back to the, I suppose, the, the clarity about what sort of father I wanted to be, 
it was easier for me to sit down and write down what sort of father I didn't want to be and then find the, the contrast to that, I guess. So I sort of call that contrast and clarity and uh, tend to apply it to a fair bit of my life, actually. But, um, yeah, writing down, well, I don't want to be an absent father, you know, I don't want to miss out on kicking the football with my boys. So obviously the opposite of all of this, my boys are what, 20, 23 and 21. And uh, if there's ever an opportunity that we go out on the back back lawn and um, effectively like UFC, uh, we, we roll around and get ourselves in all sorts of compromising positions until eventually we're tapping out. And then it's like, oh, well done, mate. I can't believe you got me in that position and I, I let you get under my chin. And so to me there... That's that's a golden moment, 20, 21 and 23 years later, um, having that relationship with my sons um, is is a big part of, um, I suppose, men, men of change. Um, it's not saying that my life has been rosy with them and it's not saying that we don't have arguments. We do, but um, we welcome those. I see them a lot like a, a boil or a pimple. If you, if you don't have arguments or things don't rise to the surface in a relationship, even with a husband and wife, um, if they don't rise to the surface, then you can't really address what the issue was and uh, start that healing process. So um, allowing those deeper conversations to find somebody's irritation and explore it a bit, I think goes a long way to having a, a relationship. And so, yeah, I've been more, married 25 years this year and uh, two awesome sons. So, yeah, I can... Something's working. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's obviously working. Yeah, um, just a couple of points on that, um, back to the wrestling, right? Yeah. So I've got two girls. I grew up with a sister. So boys weren't in the equation until I had a grandson. And yeah. now I've got two grandsons, two boys. So one's... 18 and one's four and they they you're sitting on the lounge and they're always climbing over you and I know my mum just the other day we were over there and she this so she's nan and she's telling the four-year-old lounges are for sitting on (laughs) they're not to be climbing on and it's like what and it's a boy thing and then when the two of those brothers get together the older one and the younger one it's all about wrestling and hitting each yeah. other and, yeah. and and it's so different to how girls are. We're just not like that. We just want to make little messes everywhere and cut things up and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily be pretty girls, but it's so different. And even when my eldest grandson was younger and he'd have his friends over and my daughter had to basically sit Nana down, which was me, and say, Mum, <laughs> they're boys. That's what they do because I'd be saying, stop hitting each other, stop, you know, yelling and rolling around. And she's like, yeah. Mum, that's what they do. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't know that. And hearing you say that clarifies yeah. it. <laughs> I suppose it's it's about there's so much more involved in that uh, contact with your boys. I mean, when they were young, obviously, I could take two on at once. But we would, we would often colour code our play sessions. So if it was um, – if we were playing and it's getting a little bit rougher, then we're getting up into the orange zone. You know, somebody might cop a little bit of an el- uh, an accidental elbow to the head and it might be on the edge of tears and things like that and go, okay, right, so that one was a bit hard. That's sort of getting into the orange zone. It's a bit tougher here. Are we okay with that? If, we go, if it's accidental, you understand that. Are we okay to play at orange or you want to bring it back to a yellow, you know? Um, and red is that you, you, you can't allow your anger to get the better of you and be – in a vindictive way, attempting to hurt the other person. 
um, as far as you know, them wanting to get even with me or get even with each other. Um, I remember setting up a uh, one particular day when the two boys were, which they very rarely do, um, were having a bit of a go at each other, a bit of a dig, and it was just going on. And it's the sort of one that irritates the parents where it's like, guys, just take it outside, you know. And so I, I think my wife, um, yeah, Neryl, she was, she, was, she was out for the day. And I set up this uh, rope in the lawn and bought out a couple of pairs of sparring mitts and put both the boys in the centre of that. And I said, you got one minute, sort it out. And it, I'm not recommending this works for every dad, but uh, I think it got to about 57 seconds and I could see someone was about to lay the other one out. So I uh, time, I said, have we resolved that issue? <laughs> you know, I didn't want to be heading down to the uh, dentist to replace some teeth or something. So, uh, but yeah, when I, when I look at them now, 23 and 21 years old, they're just awesome brothers together. They, they can talk openly about what is irritating each other. Um, and they don't talk over each other. They allow each other to voice their opinion, and they they resolve they resolve shit that I don't hear many brothers get to do. And um, and full credit to them. And I, I guess I can take some of that on board. Uh, but yeah, um, it's about yeah welcoming deeper conversations. Yeah, and that's what as a woman I find some of the most challenging things with men and boys and teenagers, you know, is, well, because, well, everyone knows I love to talk and I'll talk about me all day. I even say that when I'm talking to my dad or a friend or something. I say, anyway, enough about me. I can talk about me all day. What are, what's going on in your life? Because <laughs> there's always something going on. Um, but with men, how's your day? Yeah, all right. Like mm. the real miner, my partner, he, um, he's underground. That's why yeah. he's a real miner. And yeah. we're not open cut. We're just yeah. you know, landscape garden. What do they What do they call the open cut miners? Have you got a? Oh yeah, gravelies, uh, gravel oh, scratchers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, landscape yeah. artists. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's quite There's quite a few. I've got a whole episode about what makes a real miner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll link to that in the show notes, which can be found at madmumsy.com forward slash beers seventy two. Where yeah. you see what, all what the was that one again? Yeah. Madmumsy.com forward slash beers at 72. There you go. I'll check that yeah. one out. Yeah. Yeah, that would um, be great. I'll, uh, it'll take a while because, like I was saying at the start, this is the easy bit <laughs> and yeah. there's so much more after that. But um, oh, 72 is your episode. Oh, I'll tell yes. you about the real miner. If you go back to just madmumsy.com forward slash beers, yeah. you can find all the episodes. Scroll down. And you'll see real minor in Excellent. there. Yeah. 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 Uh, I won't even start because it's like a whole podcast episode on that. <laughs> Good. Um, Good. But, yeah, he, I say, how was work? Yeah. But trying to uh, get them, get them <laughs> to open yeah. up yeah. and yeah. just say a little bit more about how their day was or what they're thinking or what's going on. But I find then they're holding it all in and just not letting the bits out of the day. Yeah. And then if something really bad happens and you haven't been available to them to help them talk through it, because especially in mining, a lot of shit happens out there and we've had a lot yeah, of yeah. people die lately from accidents and a lot of near misses and like if you're working as an example underground and the wall comes down and you have to run out and you dismissed it, 
and you didn't get to talk to anyone about it and then all of a sudden it can blow up and you don't even know as the woman at home this is someone I know that that happened to and you didn't even know that that was happening and you know you're you're trying to ask how was your day and if you don't freaking tell us how are we meant to know so holding it in and to be able to teach kids younger I guess is why I bring all that up yeah it's got to help so much yeah Uh, we, we can certainly be our own worst enemy where we we do bottle a lot of this up and especially like when you look at different emotions, this is all almost getting touchy feely here. But we talk about obviously love, joy, happiness, Careful. all those hang sorts on, of things. That we- hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> See, hey, that's got my, the point. I'll go and put my high vis on. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're allowed to be touchy feely. It doesn't have to be, you can be tough and touchy feely. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I have to, I'm touchy feely, nice, emotional, all of that. I have to learn to toughen up a bit, hmm. harden up. Hmm. which is something they're trying not to make a say out in the minds, harden the fuck up, you know, yeah, take yeah, a cup yeah. of cement and all of that. Yeah, yeah. But I seriously have to, even in our for, in our coaching call, the first time I was on and I got feedback, I was nearly crying. And I knew that everyone could tell I was nearly crying because I just don't take confrontation at all. You know, yeah. I'm in my little bubble and everyone's nice until they're yeah. not and then I don't want to deal with it, whereas a lot of men – think showing that side at all is making them vulnerable. Is that what it is, mm. do you think? Vulnerability yeah, yeah, yeah. Or exposing yeah, a crack like, somewhere? Yeah, I suppose as we just saying, as you, as you look at the different emotions and we do look at, we tend to put one above the line and one below the line as if one is not a good trait while the other emotions seem to be the best traits and you should show them all the time. But to me, everything is in duality. You can't have night without day. You can't have war without peace. You can't have uh, love without hate, you know. Um, so when it comes to the emotions, especially for blokes and we don't share it, the, the, the touchy-feely ones of, you know, love, joy, happiness and things like that, we don't tend to talk much about that. And the other emotion of uh, it might be you know, anger, guilt, frustration, things, uh, we, we tend to bottle them in and don't share them anyway. And so we can spend a lot of our days which might lead into weeks or months where we're bottling emotions in of something that's really irritated us and i like i liken it to the analogy of a, a bottle of coke where you get a bottle of coke and uh you know you give it a little shake and that represents just that little irritation with that co-worker that's just got you a little bit fired up and then somebody else does something else which adds to it and you're shaking that bottle of coke again and sooner or later there's a lot of pressure building up in there and unless as men we find a way to release that pressure gradually some poor prick's going to come along they're going to take the lid off that bottle of coke and they are going to wear it and then you've got to think okay well that wasn't called for i went off my handle of that guy he copped the brunt of everyone else's frustrations that irritated me and he wore the lot of it and then you have to do the big flip and go around and say hey muddy about what mate what happened the other day uh, it wasn't about you. This happened. Uh, just to, here to apologise. But by that stage, it's gone through HR and it's it's blown up, and you're everybody's worst nightmare, worst enemy. And yeah, so it's it's about managing our emotions more and being able to talk about it. And I suppose I'm in a uh, well, you know, I'm ex-military, so you know we t- do talk very openly with each other, but we also do a lot of piss taking of each other and, you know, pranking each other and uh, and really at times getting into each other's face about certain things, but you tend to build up a, a certain resilience to that. 
And then when I left the military and I joined the uh, the civilian workforce, some of that some of that just doesn't wash. They don't they don't see humour the same way as we do in the military. Um, if I if I take the piss out of somebody, I expect them to be taking the piss out of me. And if I don't get it back, I'm thinking, hey, I'm probably overstood the mark. I probably overstepped the mark there, and I need to just uh, be careful because they're civilians. They, uh, yeah, yeah, a bit softer in the edges sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that that is very similar to mining, and there yeah, are yeah. quite a few ex-military in mining that I've actually had a couple on the podcast as well, and they say the same thing. And when I first started mining, I struggled a lot, and, you know, I won't go into all of that again, um, but one of the biggest tips that I got was start giving it back, Leanne. It's, you know... People don't dislike me because I always thought everyone didn't like me and I wasn't good enough and all the things and I was struggling learning how to do it anyway and I just got out of a 22-year relationship and I was broken but I happened to end up on a crew of 60 men learning to drive a big truck, you know, yeah. whilst bowling my eyes out most of the time, in, even in the car on the way with five, four blokes and me and a song yeah. had come on the radio and I'm, I'm losing my shit, you know. That'll do Then it. I had to go and drive <laughs> trucks and I was having nightmares and it was yeah. not a very good place. But that's what they said. They're just – it's how mining is, They especially back then. It's how mining yeah. is in there. You get, they're just – everyone's just mucking around. They're taking the piss. You've got to give it back. And when I started giving it back, they were saying, oh, it's about time, you know. Yeah. And it really, it really did help me. But then – as the years progressed, a lot of the lines were getting crossed and you're not allowed to say that and you can't talk to that person like that anymore. And mm. um, some people, new people come on the crew and they don't get the mentality of it and they go straight to HR and mm. they're being discriminated against or picked on or, you yeah. know, bullied and all of the things, whereas it's it's the culture, but they're trying to change the culture. Like you're not meant to say, take a cup of cement anymore and just harden up. Yeah, because right. We have to work around everyone's everything, so yeah. it is challenging. Um, but I, especially underground and military, the underground are like that a lot too, because yeah. uh, there's such a small crew. Yeah, and they all have to have each other's back. I guess like the military. Yeah. When you're going yeah. into a, you know, a yeah, situation. I certainly see it's very much like working in a, a small four man patrol. In, mm. In tricky situations, it's like you need to know they've got your back and you've got theirs, and uh, that's what it is down there. And uh, so I think a lot of those guys you'd probably find they can communicate with each other without even saying a word. You know, it can mm. just be uh, expressions or nods and things like that. It's like, mate, I hear you. You know, um, yeah, yeah, you, you do. Yeah. You do grow pretty close when you're in uh, a tight group, especially in a situation where you can't talk. Yeah. Mm. So you were in the military, and then was that? Before or after you have kids, had kids? You- yeah, so um, as I say, pretty dysfunctional childhood um, and uh, left you know, numerous different foster homes and then I eventually left school and started work in a um, um, horticultural nursery and I was I was working there from about the age of 14 till about 17 um, and then the that business sort of dried up and I needed to find other work and I went down to the local Commonwealth Employment Service, as it was known in Tasmania. And uh, I was looking at the different uh, job advertisements on the board, and there was a guy in a green uniform over in the corner talking to about 10 people about life in the army. And uh, I didn't go over and sat, sit down, but I just stayed where I was, and I was having a bit of listen to what he was saying. And uh, the wheels were turning in my mind, I suppose, and not 
having experienced much in the way of a strong male role model, model I really liked the way he had this element of authority. Yet he, uh, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, speaking at them, but he was speaking with them about life in the military, and uh, and he wandered over to me straight after that, and he said, "Oh, mate, I noticed you were listening in there. Is is the military something you'd be interested in?" And I said, uh, yeah, just lost my job where I was working. And he said, look, we do have a um, uh, an intake or a, it's a physical and a mental thing you've got to go through or the, uh, the intel um, in two weeks' time up at Launceston. He said, hey, come on up. We'll give you, you know, free lunch for the day, free bus trip up, see how you go and if it's for you. Um, yeah, long story short, two weeks later I was in the Army. Uh, I still don't know how I got through the aptitude test, to be honest. I think they must have mucked up the paperwork because, um, I had to say, I left, yeah, left school at 14. Yeah. Or you were a little bit more clever than you gave yourself credit for. <laughs> yeah, I think Maybe. the first option. Yeah, but oh. <laughs> um, yeah. And then after joining the military, it uh, there, there was that feeling of uh, strong male role models around me that was what I was probably lacking in my earlier earlier childhood. And when it came close to the three year markets uh, that you sign up at that stage for three years. I then decided, well, am I going to go back to Tasmania, which employment wasn't easy to find at the time, or do I stay in for a bit longer? And if I do, what am I going to do? And I heard about a um, a unit over in Western Australia called the SAS Regiment, and I'd never heard of it up until that stage, and uh, inquired a bit about it and and uh, decided, well, if I'm going to give this particular unit a, a crack at getting in there, because it's quite a selection process to get in there, and uh, so I thought, if I'm going to give it a crack, I'm going to give it my best crack. And if I don't get in, then I'll look at getting out of the military. But I'll give it a go. So, yeah, quite a bit, quite a bit of time spent doing, um, yeah, pack walks at all hours of the of the night and heaps of physical grueling type work leading up to it. And then that was only a warm up to compared to what they hit you with when you get there. And it's not a, um, and you probably relate to this in some respect with the mining sector. Um, when you're doing the selection course for the SAS regiment, it's not um, it's not a course that's set up to teach you anything. And in fact, they're not even there to give you any positive feedback. They're just there to put you through a whole series of grueling, um, I suppose, challenges, mental, physical, um, as teams, as individuals, and they're trying to break you effectively over that 28 door, 28 day period. So I started with 140 eight soldiers, um, professional soldiers on my course and uh, dwindled down to 28 in the end. So I got through once again, skin of my teeth. Yeah, uh, but I, uh, and I, know I then spent another nine years with the Australian SAS Regiment and got out in uh, got out in 94 and uh, done another eight years of reserve work and spent a fair bit of time in around the Pilbara at, uh, uh, with the Pilbara Regiment there. So I, I, I know all that country out the back there through Tom Price and Parabudu and Newman. And, uh, yeah, I know that country really well. It's it's harsh country, beautiful country. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you don't respect that sort of landscape, it'll come back and slap you pretty hard, as um, I'm sure you're aware under the you know, work health safety policies of working in heat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, that's just in a controlled environment of a mine site, you know. Uh, we will go into a little bit about your survival skills. Hmm. That is also part of what, what you do. Um and, uh, you know, too many people go in the outback and just don't respect it and don't know enough about it and get lost or 
you know, sadly, they don't come back at all. It happens yeah. quite a lot. Um, so after the after the military, yep. is that when you met your wife? And yeah, I met my, I met my wife, and it sounds uh, almost embarrassing how I met her. I, no, um, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a uh, she's a beautician, um, and so she does all the uh, the fancy make everybody look good type thing. And i I'd, I'd received a um, I'd received a, a sponsorship package from a, a team member. We were, we were planning as a team before to do an expedition to Antarctica whilst I was in the regiment and uh, we had a couple of our major sponsors fall through in the end and it didn't happen, but I was sent over this package to uh, have a look at a sponsorship that we were going to uh, look into and a business card fell out of a, a lady called Neryl and she had a, a beauty salon called On Fave Visage and my mate said, just go and uh, uh, have a well, give this lady a call. She's a friend of my girlfriend's, and uh, hey, you may have something in common. And twenty-five years later, we do. <laughs> but uh, so uh, people say, "Oh, how'd you how'd you meet her? Were you getting your legs waxed?" Uh, you know, Peterson, as they would call me. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I want to know, Peterson. What? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I'm a big part about what my listeners are thinking. I like to think I know what they're thinking and I bet you at home or in your truck or on the plane are thinking, I wonder what he had done. Was it a <laughs> <laughs> now get ready, this is the mining gutter door coming out. I reckon to, I know what you're gonna say too. That crack and sack. <laughs> yeah, so the, the joke comes up it comes up often, but uh, <laughs> no, it's a little bit like they talk about a carpenter or a plumber's own business, you know, or mechanics that the car needs work on and uh, yeah, so I'm not actually that much into massages. If if I have a you know, a knot somewhere and I need it out, I don't mind somebody getting in there with the elbow or, or getting it out. But I'm not somebody that really enjoys a relaxing massage. It doesn't do anything for me. I can better spend that uh, half an hour or an hour doing something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny you, you speak of it, about vouchers. It's just triggered a memory for me at one band camp, one mine we were at, which is yeah. how I talk. I'm not here to name and shame. I'm just – but. We got a a voucher. I don't know. We it was a safety initiative or a, yeah, some yeah, bonus yeah. for something or other, and we didn't get them very often at this band camp. And um, one year, all the men got screwdriver set, and all the women got vouchers for the beauty salon in the local mining town. Well, it was on because. You know, I really wanted the screwdrivers. <laughs> and then there were <laughs> yeah. other people going, how yeah. dare they assume that I want to go to the – and then there was this old fella known as Grandad, and those of you that know him know him as Grandad and know and love him. And he swapped me my beauty voucher for the screwdrivers from the local hardware store and um, – he was going around. He used to talk a bit funny, and he goes, hee, 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 "I'm going to go in and get a back crack." Zap. <laughs> Isn't oh that God. right? And didn't the guys just think he was a legend? And I've just yeah. never forgotten it. God, Granddad, <laughs> you're you're about to scar the uh, young lady that's probably going to do that process for the rest of her life. <laughs> exactly what what we all thought at the time, and we knew the beautician yeah. in town. And so then after that, they just I think it ended up being a hundred dollar voucher. 
to spend at anywhere of your choice in the local town because they were supporting the community as well. Most yeah, of us just sure. went, went to the pub and, you know, had tea and had a big night. <laughs> yeah. But not yeah. everyone. So, sorry, yes, carry on. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, and so it was after I got out of the military, I think it was still in the reserves, I spent about seven, six or seven years up with the uh, Law Force in the top end. And uh, that's a, a, a military unit that's got somewhere around 40% of the soldiers are uh, um, Indigenous from uh, out, you know, Kakadu, Arnhem Land, you know, yeah, Brown Beginning, Goulburn Island, Melville Island. So I was, I was the only... Um, I was the only white fella or Bullander, as they referred to, um, uh, in my patrol, and the rest were Aboriginal. So, from my early stages of uh, leaving the military and having that connection with um, Indigenous soldiers up there, uh, it wasn't actually my first. When when I was learning my basic survival courses with the SAS regiment, uh, we would be taught by Indigenous. Um, by Indigenous men of the Western Desert, how to uh, obviously identify, you know, plants that are edible, how to use medicinal plants, uh, how to rub sticks together and light fire. So I started to get this quite a keen interest in um, in the survival aspect and, and living off the land. And uh, I, I suppose I've, I've built on a lot of that knowledge through soldiers that are Indigenous, but also any opportunity to, um, to, to find some of that what's almost a lost knowledge with some of our Indigenous now through a lot of it's no fault of their own, it's through the circumstances that happened over the last couple of hundred years. It's a common, common debate. Um, but uh, for those that uh, make that effort to hold on to that knowledge, I um, yeah, I, I want to spend time with them. It's it's something that I relate to. I'm a very earthy person in a lot of ways, so um, being out on, on country is pretty important to me, yeah. And do you get to do that very often these days? Probably doesn't matter how much I do it. It probably still doesn't feel like enough. Yeah, um, <laughs> especially during this COVID process. I mean, my my natural go to would be just uh, throw my backpack on and go and disappear somewhere into the bush. I feel far more comfortable there than I do around an urban environment. Mm. Um, but to me, I suppose with 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 COVID, we're what some might think we're on the tail end of uh, COVID, but uh, with the possibility of a second wave, it's um, yeah, that's that's. It's still all very much up in the air, but for for the family structure uh, in around here and, and having to be in closer to the urban environment, um, I've enjoyed it in a lot of ways. I um, have had other conversations with my boys that might not have come up normally, even though we speak openly. Um, it's just what's happening in their world gets spoken about a lot more. A lot more card games, a lot more banter, a lot more setting up a gymnasium in the backyard and challenging each other. And, yeah, so it's, it's we've grown cl- closer and I really hope that that's been the case for a lot of people. Um, could be quite different in the mining sector because of the, the fly-in, fly-out and the restrictions of flights interstate. Um, that could, uh, in some ways, either divide or bring people closer together to where absence makes a heart grow fonder. So, yeah, it, it, I'll be interested in your take on that, Leanne, how it's worked with the mining sector with relationships between husband, wife, families and partners, well, not just Sarah, husband and wife, but partners, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And we spoke about this earlier too. We might just touch on this now um, and then and then go into that about when we're talking about father and sons, um, you mm also see that like you might think you haven't got kids so this doesn't relate to you but you might be an uncle or a father figure or you might be one of the young younger people I mean you can still have those relationships 
no matter how old you are. You know, I've still got a relationship with my dad and I'm, you know, very yeah. middle-aged over the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's right, isn't it, Rick? Is that yeah. um, the best way to put it? Yeah, it is. Um, I, th- I think there's a, an opportunity now more than more than ever that um, so many different men, I, I really would like to see a lot more men step up and take on that role of either being a mentor or a father figure uh, to more young people because at the moment we we haven't really set ourselves up for uh, an intergenerational um, fathering process, if you like. There's, I can think of numerous people around me where this you know, the particular bloke doesn't speak to his dad anymore. They had a falling out years ago. And there's this constant disconnect between relationships between father figures and their son. So if I say fathers and, see, fathers and sons, it's realistically it's um, sons and any father figure or person of significance. And I, I do throw the word trusted in there because, uh, yeah, um, yeah, there are circumstances out there where there, whilst it might seem like that is the right person to mentor a son, you really want to make sure you're making the right choices. My childhood was an example of that where somebody was put into trusting um, uh, you know, me being to trust this particular person. Um, there wasn't very much screening back in those days. And so during the foster care system, yeah, I, I fell into the, the, the wrong, wrong male um, mentoring father structure there. So it's a big one to me that we mentor our uh, young men being into being good quality men, that that becomes intergenerational so that long after the fathers have gone, those skills and things that they've learnt um, surrounding, I suppose, what I do, because I take fathers and sons into the bush environment, teach them all sorts of survival skills and how to rub stickers together, light fire, find water, uh, but at the same time around the campfire, we have some good conversations. Um, I'm not a religious person. I don't go down that particular avenue of making it about uh, a faith or a God or anything like that. But I do I do ask him to try and find something that uh, allows him to connect to something, you know. Um, and in a survival situation, if we roll through the different uh, priorities of survival or we look at the word uh, survival as an acronym, uh, under the... Um, under the you know, S would be, say, size up the situation and utilise your skills, remember where you are. Under the first V, it's very much value living. And so for, for in a scenario where someone was lost, it is about the finding something that is so important to you that you want to get yourself out of that situation and back home. And if you have a very, very strong relationship with a family member, a father, could even be your dog. It's really about, it's really about allowing that to bring a step, put the hairs up on the back of your neck, put a lump in your throat, and go. Oh, I've got to get out of this situation. I need to think logically. I need to, you know, I need to make sure that I'm making the right decisions here to get myself back to that. So if you don't believe strongly or passionately about a bigger picture further down the track. Um, what are you? What are you fighting for? What, you know, it's going to be that extra edge, that mental ability to fight for something. So relationships are a strong one. Even in my survival kit, I've got a. Um, I don't have it here in front of me, but uh, my survival kit. If you open it up, it's got yeah, it's got a way to light fire, and it's got this and fishing line and hooks and things like that in there. But there's also a small photograph in there of uh, myself, my wife, and my two boys, and they're only probably yeah. five, five and six in the photograph. But if I was to pick that up and I was feeling a little bit down and out in a lost lost situation and I looked at that, that would choke me up so much that I would do everything in my power to get myself back to them. 
Um, and it wouldn't matter whether there were, I sometimes talk about, you know, like we, with media these days, we probably have movie cameras or you know, you know, television cameras at the front door of the house saying, hey, your, your husband's been lost out in the bush for two weeks now. Uh, do you think he's going to be all right? I, I need to know, and it would be true, my wife would say, don't worry, he'll be right. He knows what he's doing. And uh, in her mind, she knows I've got the photograph. She knows what the family mean to her and uh, that if she's not going to give up on me, there's no way I can give up on her. So I talk about that on a deeper level around a campfire, about um, having something you stand for. And if it's not your family, what, what is it? But find something in life that you stand for, something that's bigger than you, much bigger than you. Yeah. Oh, you're choking me up now. See, this is <laughs> coming out. That's gold. Thank you for sharing that. That's um, I can imagine those campfire conversations, how powerful they are for you. Um, a big part of just quickly relating that to mining is that's what we talk about between myself and my sister, Hard Hat Mentor, is what is your why? You know, what is your reason to go out to work and get home at, how, what is the why that you were doing it in the first place and why are you going to stay safe? Why are you going to do the right things? Why are you going to have that sleep on the way home rather than pushing through and driving fatigued and maybe not mm. making it home? Yeah. Um, why are you going to do the do your work safely and not take risks? And it, like you say, it can be your your family, it can be your dog, it can be because yeah. you've got to go back and finish your tattoo or, you you know, yeah. you're going boating next week or yeah. whatever it is. And a big part of yeah. what I say is take a little bit of that with you to your camp, to your donga. You know, I've yeah. got a whole episode about make your donga more homely. And me, it used to take four trips to, from the car to because a lot of us up here do drive in, drive out, but it still comes under the FIFO family. Yeah. Because there's yeah. FIFO, Dido, Bibo, which is bus right? yeah. There's SISO, which is ship in, ship out. Yeah. That was someone that came on the podcast. And then the my funnest one is Hi Ho. Hi Ho, Hi Ho. And they helicopter in and helicopter out and they go out to the oil rigs. Yeah. Yeah, right. But most of the issues, if you like, the challenges, all they we just come under the umbrella of FIFO because that's what it yeah. doesn't mean you actually get on a plane necessarily because yeah. you're still going away from your family. You, you know, you're usually in a high-risk environment and, um, you know, you need to work out what your why, why are you going to do it safely? And a big part of what I do is even before people get a job is why do you want to do it? What is the reason you want to do it? <clears throat> and these are all the other things that could challenge your family. Mm. And this is a big part of why I wanted to have you on the podcast is be about the relationships and especially with your kids. If you're, you're going away to work, so what plan are you going to have to still be able to stay in touch on a nightly basis or even when you come home? on your break, life is still going on, but you feel like, well, I'm on break, I'm, I'm going fishing, I'm going here, I'm going that. But the family haven't seen you for a week hmm. and sometimes that can be a challenge. You know, yeah. well, why are you going out with your crew? You've been with them all week. What about us? And it can get, there's a lot of challenges and especially as the boys, the kids, the sons start to 
get a bit older and start to retreat into themselves and their devices and if the father figure isn't one that will just open up and try to help them learn how to open up and they're both not opening up and then the women are in the middle trying to think, well, you know, everyone's just growing apart and um, sadly, you know, suicide is a big thing in our industry as well. People just don't come out of their dollars sometimes and there's been inquiries into it and everything and so the value of the sort of things that you're doing, getting father and sons out around campfires and starting to have those deeper uh, conversations with each other and with themselves. So th- is, that's a big part of it too. Like you're saying, find your your reason to keep living and doing the things and to yeah. survive. You mm. use it as su- the survival side of it. Um, that's going to affect their whole life if they can start to think like that. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of it does relate to I was just reading a um, – a blog on LinkedIn by an ex-military guy. We didn't overlap in the regiment, but he's got out and he, he runs a business called Point Assist. But he was talking about the soft and the hard skills that we learn in the military. Those hard skills might be how to strip and assemble a um, general purpose machine gun and, and, and do the drills. They're the hard skills that have to be taught to be able to you to, to be an effective member of patrol. But the softer skills are the, the ability to uh, be able to communicate and uh, empathise and all those sort of things. So I think it's the softer skills that... Um, from it might be that I'm a you know, so-called survival instructor and, you know, I can go out there and I can do it rough. But at the end of the day, there needs to be an element of soft skills in order for you to survive. If you think survival in the bush is about going in there with an axe and a machete and start hacking everything down and destroying the place, uh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to find yourself in the hurt locker pretty quick. You need to have respect for everything around you and you need to stay, really start tuning into it. Uh, the environment out there will tell us so much about what we need to hear and listen to in order to get ourselves out. If we don't understand the, the pattern and the movement of the birds and when, when, you know, when, they're, when they're picking up on something that there's something else out there or you hear, you know, um, yeah, they're like a, a great indicator for water. I can often tell by the sound of a bird if it's an alarm like if a butcher bird sees a snake i know that call and i can go for a you know 40 meter walk following the sound of this butcher bird and there'll be a big carpet python there and if i needed to utilize that for food i could i mean it's against the law to protect that species so no i don't go out there and hack up things but if you're not tuned into the environment then you see the the environment as now uh, as an enemy and as a human race i do feel that we we have separated ourselves from so much of nature where we see nature as like, oh, that's where all the animals live and that type of thing, and we're humans and we live in civilization. I, I do feel that we need to have that that link and that element of connectiveness back to back to nature. And it sort of sounds a bit bit touchy feely because we're talking about the mining yeah, sector. Yeah, but but yeah, but um, certainly even in, in the military. Um, it's about moving through the jungle and being at one with it when you're having to get from point A to point B without being detected. You have to move like an animal through the jungle. And if in a survival situation, you know, you, yeah, you, it's, it's going to come back and bite you pretty hard unless you can learn to you know, be at one with it. Like I'm, you, I don't know if you've seen any of the images on my social media, but I'm more than happy to have spiders crawling over my face and things like that. And people go, oh, my God, you know, flamethrower, get rid of it. It's it's not like that. I mean, there's there's nothing out there that I really fear 
and knowledge dispels fear and that's something that comes up in the survival training and it can be so applicable to aspects of our life where it might be that you're scared to make that cold call to another business owner because oh what if they say no and it's like you're building up this uh, no before you've even looked at the situation so putting knowledge into it it's the same as jumping out of plane i've obviously done with being with the sas read and jumped out of plane hundreds of times but it's it's the knowledge that dispels the fear. I understand the quality of that parachute. I understand the riggers. I probably know the riggers that pack the parachute um, and everything. So leaping out the back of a plane with a parachute, yes, there's always the butterflies, but it's a knowledge that um, goes behind it all that allows you to dispel that fear and go go to it as a, as a job with your confidence. So I can see that being the same with the guys that are working under, underground. They're under no illusion that they're working a dangerous job. They understand that but the greater their knowledge is about what they're doing will lessen that opportunity for an accident going wrong. It's the same as, yeah, it's very transferable. I see um, yeah, the load to life working um, not as a gravel scratcher, but underground. <laughs> yeah. oh, Oops, man. here we go. <laughs> Bloody real miners. They sneak in with the real people, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, but as you were t- talking about being at one with nature, Mm-hmm. And like with the military going through the jungle and that, it, it's the same in mining, especially underground. I have not done it, never going to, but I yeah. like my partner's underground, my sister's partner works underground, I've interviewed underground miners. Um, so I know a lot more about it now than I used to, but they have to listen to the environment so much. And like you say, it's like being at one with it because yeah. you can hear if something's changed. You can hear if something's moved. You can smell it. And even in the open cut, I remember when I first started in coal mining because I was in gold for a while. And <laughs> funnily enough, it was that granddad fellow I was talking about earlier. He said to me, when you're going down in, the, in down into the pit, you're going through um, down the ramp into a slot, Watch the walls and listen if you just stand, you know, if you're there. You'll, you'll see it if if the wall's going to come down on you because they have um, wall, wall failures, high wall yes, failures, yeah. low wall failures, lots of them. Um, and you start to see it moving and, and you need to start being aware of that environment around you. Mm. And the coal, because coal is a lot softer than, you know, the earth on top of it at, at yeah. times. And once it's started to weaken in certain points, the the coal will actually spit out of the wall. And I was yeah. like, no, it doesn't, you know, but it does. And I, I've seen, I haven't actually seen it spit out of the wall, but I've seen walls fall, fail, especially the low wall, which is where the drag line lifts it up and piles it up. And then it just starts to slowly move, sometimes yeah. fast. I've seen ramps crack. And, you know, we were the last light vehicle to get over before the ramp cracked. And the, all the bosses were standing up on the top of this pit. And they were saying, "Use it all be right. You can get one more load." And the digger driver was scratching away, and he ended up saying, "No, nah, I'm out of here." And he walked his digger out, and got in the light vehicle and just got out in time. Otherwise, I don't know how they would have got him out. Um, but then the floor starts to heave, so the whole it's all moving. This environment around you that you've been driving over for weeks, and the the next time you come back, the lighting plant is heaps higher and then it's on its side because you know and it yeah and they were still sending us in there and we yeah. ended up saying no we're we're out we're not coming back he said you truckies do not come back down here 
They were up there. They needed that coal. It needed to be on a ship now. You know, it's like that's not our fault. That's planning. That This is all at one band camp. And there's lots of band camps that are like that. So that's where you have to watch the environment, even in mining. And our survival instinct was, no, I'm going home this week. I'm not getting buried by a high wall because the mm. boss said to mm. do another load. And For sure. our survival instincts kicked in, I guess. And that really must overlap into... Uh, the conversation of leadership, and when you're looking at the uh, the role of leadership in the mining sector, knowing that that person above you making some of those hard calls, um, understand exactly what you're going through, and if they haven't been in that circumstantial situation, then it's pretty hard to follow a a, a leader or a manager or you know somebody that's just making a call that's contrary to what you know to be safe. Does does that's that happen happen very often? Um, yeah, it can on and off in different band camps, different reasons and different uh, people running the show. They yeah. say uh, different circus, same clowns. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <No>? right, yeah. <laughs> um, so you move from one site and it, it can be the same. Um, we're hoping that change, cultural change is starting to come. There's a lot mm. more training going on in a lot of places as well. Um, but it, it it comes down to choices, you know. I had a couple of episodes ago, episode 69, I think, Woody, the safety bloke, and he's in a wheelchair. And mm. he has safety speakers that go out to site that have all had something happen to them on a workplace or because yeah. of work choices. And um, they're very powerful conversations. And that, that was a, that was a good episode. You'd, you'd like a, mm. that one, mm. I think. Um and it does come down to our own duty of care, mm. number one. It has to be it, – it ends up – it comes down to us. And even if we have signed a JSA, a piece of yep. paper that says a job safe yep. analysis, that, right, we can go into this high-risk area because we've all signed this bit of paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in theory – if we do it this way and that way and that way and that way, we can do whatever the thing is. Like it might be a dozer that's gone over or a truck or, you know, there's a lot of things that happen and then they've got to get it out or it broke down in the wrong spot or um, we've got to go into a tricky area. So there's ways we can still do it, but we need to have a plan. But if it only takes a little bit of that plan someone didn't follow, it all goes to shit. Yeah. Or... Um, or there's part of the plan someone didn't think about. Yeah. So um, and changing circumstances, you know, you've you've yeah. looked at the risk matrix and you've considered that it's safe enough to go into that environment. And once again, same as the military, um, but there are factors that change beyond your control that you now need to quickly on the spot make a make a decision to uh, yeah to to change that matrix to make sure everybody comes out safely. Yeah. yeah. And um, a big part too is. Uh, learning to start to have the courage to speak up in mm. in life in general, um, but especially with mining in in your pre-start meetings, for example, or 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 to challenge yep. something if you're not sure, or to ask questions. And a lot of what's going on in our industry at the moment is there's a lot of contract labour hire, so people don't want to speak up because they don't want to lose their job. They could just be escorted to the gate and not be told why or they don't have to be told why. Yeah. Um, no, no sickies, no holidays and no security. Um, 
the only good thing, if there isn't really, is that you can um, also leave whenever you want and say, yeah, bye, take me to the gate, I'm out of here, (laughs) I'm going to find a new circus. Um, But there's inquiries into that now about is that what has caused a lot of the deaths here in Queensland? Um, People fear of speaking out because of contract labour hire and they are like the CFMEU had just got a court case in the high court and uh, it looks like they are going to have to back pay sickies and um, holidays to contractors, labour hire. But will that send some people over the edge because they might not be able to afford it, the actual, you know, labour hire place? Can they afford to pay every worker back pay holidays and sickies for the last four years or something? Mm. So it's still it's still ongoing, but it still comes back to choices, I guess, is mm. where we were heading there. Yeah, I'm um, very much a believer in, I mean, it's definitely good to be uh, raising your voice about issues, uh, but we all know in every workplace you'll have those that will raise issues, but they'll raise, raise them in such a way that they put up a barrier, but they're, but they're being negative about the way they're raising it up. So I'm a big big believer in being a, a brainstormer and not a blamestormer. So if you've got something to say, maybe throw out a couple of suggestions that might be something that they can look at to rectify the issue or have we considered this or this, you know, and uh, people will then openly, you know, uh, take a breath and go, okay, that's, that's worth considering. Let's look into that. And they'll make a memo and then somebody possibly can follow up and, and do that. But um, yeah, you can you can sometimes put up barriers and it can happen in the military as well um, by just pointing out the problems and not finding, not not wanting to be a part of the solution, handballing that to somebody else. Whereas a, a good leader should, should be able to be, you know, I'd like to think there's a leader in all of us that we can come up with suggestions. And if, if your voice is valid, you should be listened to, yeah. Yeah, a lot of times in the minds they'll say, okay, and what's your solution? Like they'll listen to your yep. criticism or whatever it is. Yep. But they expect you then to have some sort of a solution. But a lot of people, like you yep. say, just mm. complain, oh, we haven't got this and that and this is shit and yeah. that's crap and why are we still doing it that way? And they're like, well, yeah, okay, yeah. how can we fix it? Come back to us when we can fix it. But then a lot of the... Other people will say, well, that's what they're paid the big bucks for, you know. Yeah, that's that's where my thought pattern was going. It's like it's the the handballs. That's not my pay grade, you know. You you run up there wearing your fancy blue shirts. You're the one to decide that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And as contractors, I know there was a saying going around at one point because it's one band camp. They cut our pay rate from I think we're on 52 bucks an hour, cut it to 47, but then, no, 47 down to 43 for truckies, but they gave all the digger drivers a rise, a pay rise from 47 to 52. And so they told us this in the morning. Mm. We all went out into the pit and the digger drivers, they're happy. They're like, oh, yeah, I've just got a pay rise. All the Mm. truckies were on a major go slow for the whole day. And when dispatch were calling, and it was really hard for me because I, I understood where they were coming from, I understood the argument, yeah. but it's your work ethic and it was like by the end of the day, yeah. most people had started speeding up. But if if dispatch were calling up wanting to know where's that truck, oh, I've just got to pull up and have a toilet break, you know, 
and people that never do that yeah, were doing yeah, that. Yeah. And the digger drivers going, where's my trucks? Yeah. Where's my trucks? And, and they were started saying, we're only paid for, we're only paid up to here and I'm hitting to my neck, you know, or we're not paid to think. We're just yeah, paid yeah. to, oh, and that's a, a harsh yeah. culture. It's unhealthy. Working it, in. It's not, it's not fun. <laughs> I hate it. I didn't yeah. like that. Yeah, and if you're operating in those circumstances and, in, and and that's your dominant thought pattern about the decision that was just made at the toolbox meeting that you heard about, then your mind's not on the job. Your mind is elsewhere and uh, accidents can happen because you, you missed that thing you've sort of seen because you were thinking about what old mate said back at the meeting and, uh, yeah, and as a, re- as a result, your mind's not on the job. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I have a, right. another analogy that may, uh, made me think of it before when – um, I've taken quite a few corporate groups out into the uh, into, I suppose, survival-like situations where you're putting them through training. And one of the things I like to share with them is what I refer to as the bed and awe principle. So bed as in a bed that you would sleep in and awe like an awe that you might paddle a boat in. Oh, yeah. And uh, I get them normally in the dirt. I'll draw up what looks like an A4 piece of paper and you put a line across it from left to right in the middle of the page and above it, you would have the uh, the words down the side of the page of OAR, which is ownership, accountability, responsibility. And below the line, the line that I often refer to as your own personal line of integrity, uh, below that is the uh, acronym down the size of BED. And um, if I'm working with teenagers, I'll get them to draw up in the top corner, you know, an oar and then the, and up in the top corner of the below the line, uh, a little bed. So it becomes an image in their mind or a neuro association to the bed and all principle. But when you're and you would see it in a workplace and certainly plenty, plenty of examples in the military. But if you're listening to somebody and they're constantly blaming, they're constantly making an excuse and they're constantly denying then they're people that, in my view, are sitting below their own integrity line, that they can't take themselves up above it to be able to take ownership of that particular comment they made or uh, seeking responsibility to be seeing something needed doing and just doing it, not seeking approval or um, you know, being glorified for doing it, but just uh, yeah, ownership, accountability, responsibility. And a really good leader, you look in, in your field of work, there must be people that you so much admire, admire about a certain leader and I can pretty well guarantee it without knowing that person that they display ownership, accountability, and responsibility. They're prepared to take it um, on board themselves if something stuffs up, and then they'll go about finding out how to rectify that and maybe talk to the people that may have been the issue, but they're not going to blame them. They're not going to make excuses. They're not going to deny. So the better and all principle really is a, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a valuable little analogy, I think, to, uh, to, to pass on even to our children. And uh, once you're aware of it, you'll hear it more often. And uh, I think it was the uh, Queensland hockey team. I took them out for a a pretty gruelling three days and shared this philosophy with them. And I spoke to uh, their coaches, I think it's a four-time gold medalist or whatever, um, about a year later. And he goes, uh, all the team that are still there now that remember that that section you talked about, the bed and all principle, he said, when they hear one of their teammates make any excuses like, oh, yeah, I got caught up in traffic, sorry, I'm late for training, they just tap on their nose. You know, I'm tapping on my nose now, but they just tap on their nose, which is an indicating, mate, I'm, I'm hearing you making an excuse. We don't want to hear it. We don't really even need to know why you're late. Let's just look at a way to maybe turn up or leave earlier so you don't get caught up. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great and uh, analogy, and that's um, 
the sort of thing my sister Hard Hat Mentor talks a lot about over on Hard Hat Mentor. Hard Hat, Hard Hat. <laughs> Pronounce your H's, Leanne. Hard That's my mum coming out. <laughs> my South Australian <laughs> slang. Hard Hat, mate. Get your Hard Hat on. Um, hard Hat Mentor.teachable.com. And um, yes. yeah, inside, I think her free intro course. Um, about the brain and how you can start to master influence and negate doubt. A whole section is about above and below the line thinking in mm. for mm. leaders especially and um, people in the mining industry, safety weirdos as she calls them. <laughs> she's been a safety weirdo yeah. herself so she's allowed to call on that. Um, and uh, people who have to go out and yeah. make those decisions and communicate with the crew and stuff. So it is very important to learn things like that for yourself and because even in your family, those sort of mm. things can help, can't they? Not just oh, mining and the military and survival, you know, <laughs> life. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's got its place in so many places uh, to, mm. to, to use as a way to, uh, yeah, to get a – to get more of a holistic you know, view on a certain circumstance, thinking, okay, you know, there are always two sides to every story here. A couple of friends having a go at each other and they've got their version of, they've got their version. Somewhere in the middle lies the truth and it's probably not for us to figure that out. But um, I do tend to listen to those that are making the, the blame, excuse, deny the strongest and then tend to swing the other way and to go, okay, well, the other person's looking at it from a, a more of an open, open view. In, in more cases or not, yeah. Now for a word from our sponsor, Julia Hartman and the Bantax Accounting Group. Julia's my awesome accountant. She's written two books with financial expert Noel Whitaker, and she's got a passion to help us miners make the most out of our hard-earned cash. She's got heaps of tips and make sure that we get every cent we are meant to get and is right on the ball with everything. If you head to bantax.com.au forward slash miners, that's B-A-N-T-A-C-S, you can download a free booklet all just for us miners. And there's also a spreadsheet in there that helps you check off what tools you have for your trade, like your isolation lock, work boots, seven shirts, all of these sorts of things, and you can weigh them up and it'll tell you if you qualify weight-wise to claim your trips out to work. And that's just one of the things that they've got over there. So I strongly urge you to head to bantax.com.au forward slash miners and see what they can do and find your nearest office as we come up to tax time they're really on the ball know what's going on with the tax department and there's heaps of other free information like property investing if you really plan on doing some great things with your money you want to do that right if you want to sell your house can save a lot of money if you find out what to do first rather than in hindsight and julia she'll you know make sure you get it right and if you do it wrong and then go and see her, she'll, she'll up you in the nicest possible way because she really cares about us and wants us to keep our money and not give it to the tax department. Anyway, head over to bantax.com.au forward slash miners and tell them Mad Mumsy sent you. So just, just back to when you were taking 
the father and sons out and um, staying overnight. How long do you take them away for? I know we, you spoke about the campfire. So just to give my listeners a general overview of what, what, um, mm. what do you call it? Not an adventure, an experience, so <laughs> an outing? Probably more an, an, an immersion is probably, because Ooh. we spend so little time in the bush now, I tend to refer to it as a bush immersion. Oh, that's and, good. Uh, and we'll often, um, I don't want to give away, a lot of it's a little bit scenario-based, so there will be things that unfold and unveil through the survival three-day, typically three-day event that they won't necessarily see coming, but it allows them to uh, see how they would have responded or reacted to a, a situation that has unfolded. And it's been manufactured into it. They just don't know that it's going to happen in some cases. So... Yeah, generally three days they might make their way into the bush environment um, late afternoon or even in the dark with headlamps on, walking down a bush track and they eventually meet up with me and then we'll you know, set up camp and then we start to unfold the scenarios and events that teach them these different skill sets. Um, I suppose apart from that, I, I have taken um, uh, groups through Kokoda in New Guinea too uh, on treks and we talk obviously about the, um, the, the the campaign itself in 1942 of between the Japanese and the Australian fighting on Kokoda and that brings about a lot of emotions and understandings too of uh, Australia's history. Um, so whether it's whether it's that or whether it's um, school groups, I've taken numerous school groups and looking at leadership styles and things but in the end of the day, I suppose a lot of it comes back to um, being a person of influence over some of the younger generation where they just get them to think a little differently. And and when you can do it in a father and son environment, it can often be that the son has now seen their father probably for the first time actually have to work or struggle at something. They've always put their dad on a pedestal and think, hey, dad can do everything. But they're now having to see their dad get blisters on his hands, rubbing his stick together, trying to light a fire, and and uh, and and seeing how their dad actually deals with an element of stress or frustration, uh, whether he's going to give up early, whether he's going to keep at it, whether he's going to encourage the son, and vice versa. You know, seeing whether the father encourages the son, or and how, how they react to to the frustrations of of being away from their normal comfort zone. Yeah. It must be really rewarding to watch the um, the journey that they all go on. So mm. the pair that started to the pair that ended after the three days, do you see a lot of transformation there? Do you, and, and I guess yeah. the reverse of that is do you ever <clears throat> see anywhere they just didn't get it? Yeah, it's interesting. I often my first point of contact for a father and son weekend might actually be a call from might be the mother, and she'll call up and she <laughs> might say, "Hey, look, I, I saw uh, I saw or heard a, a radio interview of you talking, and uh, I'd like to know more about it because you know my my husband and my son they're they're, they're often just at each other, and I just really would love to see them just build their relationship a bit more." And I say, oh, okay, yeah, great. Look, um, I'd love to have a chat to you, uh, to to them about it, and what what we might what we might be able to achieve. And if I'm talking to the father, and I'll often ask the father first um, a, about the possibility of going out bush and learning some of these skills, and the father will often go, yeah, yeah, it's my 14 year old son. Yeah, look, I, I hope you can fix him. He's just he does this and he does that and he does this. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm starting to get a bit of a picture here that maybe the problem is not with the son. 
of course, it doesn't help to say that, but it's like it gives it puts me in the ballpark of what what I'm working with before I even speak to the sun. Mm. Um, and with technology these days, it, it is very easy for um, I suppose I'll say teenage boys because they typically work between the ages of about twelve and seventeen, um, and a, a lot of them would prefer to be on their Xbox playing uh, a Call of Duty game or what I think I refer to as shoot them dead games, only, only to have my boys think I know nothing about them sort of thing. And uh, But, uh, yeah, they're playing the Call of Duty games and things like that with their mates and relating to them. And they're, they're growing that a little bit further away from knowing their father, unless their father is prepared to come into their room and say, hey, give me the console, let's have a game and have a bit of a game and, and not to the point where that occupies both the father and son all the time, and then the the, the wife or the you know, rest of the family is sort of going, do they ever get off them things? So it's about finding a healthy balance. Mm. So one of the programs I ran a while ago, and I'll eventually get back to running some more of them, was a, a program called Zombie Art. So it's Zombie A-R-T, which is Apocalypse Readiness Training. Sounds mm. completely irrelevant, but if you ask most teenagers um, if they're playing a zombie game on the computer, it's like, so if the zombies really attack, well, and we're out, out in the bush, what would we need? And they'd say that their ears would prick up and they would go, oh, yeah. well, we'd need to provide security and we'd need to have somebody in charge of medical and we'd need to have this and we'd need to be able to find water and food. And, and it's like, so they can get, they can start transferring their headspace about what they would need in a zombie situation. And if I said to the father, what would you need to know if uh, if you were taken into that bush environment? What are the, what are the skill sets of, that your forefathers would have known about living on the land? He would say, oh, we'd need to know how to you know, set a snare and trap food and find water. And, you know, it's, it's exactly the same skill sets for if we get overrun by zombies or if, <laughs> if we needed to survive back on the land back in the 1930s. It's the same skill. So finding that bit of a commonality between the two. I don't know if that's the actual word. I might have just made that up. But the commonality like of it. being able to, to, <laughs> to, to bring them together a little bit tongue-in-cheek but take them out into the bush and learn some of these skills and, hey, who knows, I might even, uh, might even have a few zombies come in towards the end of the three-day camp and have dinner with us. So that, um, it's good fun. Oh. They go away having a lot of fun with it. Um, but at the same time, they're learning some very practical hands-on skills and it's not all about having to rub sticks together and light fire. That that probably is considered the most difficult way to light fire. And so and there are many other simpler methods all the way down to obviously your matches and uh, you know, your lighter, which is common. But we, we probably go through about 10 or 15 different ways in which to uh, make a fire. Um, mm. And just having needs as your knowledge base go a long way to uh, making you feel far more confident and self-sufficient, even if you're not in that bush environment, that you've got skill sets that very, very few people on the face of the planet have it, have now, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and a little bit more in control of your life, I mm. guess. It would- yeah, it's, yeah, certainly under the acronym of survival, the first one is uh, size up the situation, as I mentioned before. So it might be the... Just stopping, taking a few deep breaths. If you've done any sort of meditation, maybe just sit for 30 seconds and just get your breathing together. You've realised that uh, that uh, that hill on the map that you thought was that one over there is not that one and the map is upside down and you realise you are lost. It's no point to start to, you know, it's like any appointment that maybe you or I or anybody else has been going to, you're probably going to visit a friend's place and you've taken a wrong turn on the street and you're getting frustrated because the GPS is taking you the wrong way. What do, you, what do you normally start to do? You normally start speeding up. 
you start turning, taking that next roundabout quicker and trying to retrace where you were before. And it's like that, that same thing happens out in the field, the psychology of fear of people becoming emotionally overwhelmed and you can feel it well up inside you where you've had your element of control taken away from you. And whilst you're in nature and there's not a lot around you that's going to hurt you, the decisions you make from that particular point on really does dictate how far you can go. Like you probably know you can go you know, three minutes without oxygen. You can go about three days without shelter and three hours with, you know, in the Pilbara, you go three hours without water when it's stinking hot and 52 degrees. Um, they're pretty serious, but you can go four weeks without food. But it seems to be this, this feeling that if we're lost in the bush, I need to find something to eat. It is if I don't eat, I'm going to die. It's like, you've got weeks to play with. That's the last year you've got to think of. It's going to be more about your water and shelter that you're going to have to think about and maybe setting up something so that you can be seen if an aircraft was to fly over or you could be heard if uh, somebody was nearby with a, with a, with a whistle or you know, a signal mirror or something. Yeah. So uh, the sizing up the situation really is about just getting control of where you're at emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um- I have to say it, elephant in the room, toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like everyone with COVID. Oh, even Victoria, they're all doing it again. Yeah, oh, I heard that the other day. Yeah. Yeah, mum said to me yesterday, she said, oh, I hope it doesn't come back here. I've only got three lots of toilet paper left. <laughs> Yeah, that's right, yeah. So everyone will start. I might just buy another extra one when I go. Yeah. Oh, we I've don't know a, why the toilet paper. I've got a few different bushes out there that are, uh, that are, that are user-friendly in that department. Uh, and there's certain, and we even get to wash our hands afterwards. There's a plant called Alphatonia excelsa, and it's uh, commonly known as the soap bush. And you pick off a few of the fresh leaves of that foliage, a little bit of water, and you can get a lather up better than you can get from a cake of soap, you know. So you can you can keep yourself uh, uh, hygiene, you know, hygienically friendly out there in fact that's yeah. a big one um, um we, we tend to downplay it when you're out bush and you're doing things rough but uh hygiene's a huge one if you get a case mm. of uh you know you know, uh, you know gastro and you pass that around the rest of the group or when you've got four or five people that are just stricken throwing up and diarrhea um that's a serious serious situation to be in so personal hygiene um, in a survival situation is very very important yeah Mm. It can be the same in the mining camps, as you know. You get a bout of gastro go through there, and it can affect operations for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and just again, back back to mining when you were saying about the just having a look around at your circumstances that you're in and just slow down. Um, or one of our main things, each mining company, I guess, has its own version of it. But a common terminology is your slam, which is your okay, yeah. notebook and you pull it out and you've got to fill in your slams every day for whatever situation you're in and it's stop, look, assess, manage. Mm. And yeah. um, and then they have hazard reports and JSAs and blah, blah, and it all goes mm. on from that and different minds will call it something else. Um, but it's the same situation. So if you're about to do something that feels a little bit, oh, I don't know if I should be doing that, mm. um, just stop and have a look around mm. and assess the situation and go, right, like plenty of times I've stopped at the top of a ramp looking, yep. the water cart's just been down there and I can't really see a dry line and there's a grader at the bottom and there's a loaded truck coming up. <laughs> Am I yep. going to go down this ramp? 
you know. Yeah. Um, and that's just one one little situation, but they're the sort of exactly. things that the mining leaders might say they want us to whip out our little slam book. And we're saying we're slamming in our head yeah. all the time. Yeah. You know, it, it's conscious, but they need it for their figures and their numbers and their tick in the box because they've had so many slams from this person for this week and if you haven't, you get named and shamed or something like that, mm. you know. Um, yeah. And what were they again, Leanne? I just jot those down. They're quite good. Uh, stop, look, yeah. assess, manage. Yeah. Yeah, so you slam the situation and... Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, as you say, I've heard numerous ones. That's a, yeah, it's a good one. Keeps it simple. Yeah. yeah. And when you were saying about the um, zombies, I know when my 18-year-old grandson was still living up here, he got into the doomsday prepping thing. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. sure that it was because he was watching zombie shows and, oh, well, no, shoot them up games, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... He was asking me questions all the time because he had a job up here and I was driving him to work quite a bit and we'd have some great conversations and mm. he was always talking about doomsday prepping and survival skills and, and yeah. stuff and it was really good to hear. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit scary, like he um, thought the world was going to end at any time and even the real mm. miner, he'll bring up zombies quite often. Yeah. Well, you know the zombies are going to take over the world anyway. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. the virus. Of course, he's worried about the virus, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so. you, yeah, you might, might have recently. Well, you you may have seen on one of my posts I put out the book recently called I can't remember what it was. It was uh, action actions on one point one, and it was basically looking at the pandemic uh, that we're coming through uh, through the eyes of a survival instructor. So. Um, yeah, if anybody wanted a copy of that, um, feel free to. I know I can probably put a link there so that they can uh, leave the details and I can get them a copy of that ebook. But I pretty well run through the the acronym of survival in there, and um, I suppose swing that over to the life that we're living now with the pandemic. And of course, we don't need to worry about shelter. We've got houses. We've got fresh running water out of our tap. But there's many other aspects of the, that acronym that. Um, that does you a good service by just having you think a little bit logically instead of being just so, I suppose, confused or not knowing what steps to take when when something like you know COVID is announced, it caught the world off guard. So uh, mm. yeah, just to be able to step back, have an acronym you can roll through to keep things a little bit logical, um, yeah. you know, in a time when it's um, it is confusing for sure. Mm. And that's what my sister Heartache Mentor speaks about a lot is what is in your sphere of control? What yeah. is it? Okay, everything's going to shit or, yeah. you know, it's really good, whatever it is, but what is it that you can actually control? Because we can't control the world. Yeah, exactly. We can't control what's happening in Victoria <laughs> mm-hmm. at the moment as we speak. Um, yeah. But what we can take control of is the parts in our life yeah. And what we do, are we washing our hands? Are we prepared for, you know, the doomsday preppers? <laughs> Have mm. we, um, are we social distancing, you know, physical mm. distancing? Are we doing the right things? Are we staying home and only going out when we're meant to and we're not hugging? And and yeah. you, we asked earlier, I didn't quite get around to it, but how COVID and mining, what's happening there? And there's a lot that's been going out there because mining is seen as a critical industry yeah. because the economy needs it to pay for all of these things. So they're yeah. mining 
hardly any mining has stopped, but a lot of it has changed. A lot of rosters changed from doing one on and one off. Say, so especially the FIFO over in WA, they've gone to two and two. So they're doing okay, that yep. 14 days. Pretty much yep. the isolation is either at camp or at home. A lot mm. of them are starting to go back now to the one on one. And there was a lot of leaders having to step up and cop a lot of uh, crap, I'll say it, yeah, yeah. from the crews that are like, well, everything's settling down. Let's go back to one and one. Why we still have to be here for two weeks at a time? They still get two weeks off, but yeah. they'd rather have two weeks off and work for one. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of changes. And then I know the real miner got in trouble because at the mess they've got the crosses like they do in all the shops. Yep. You've got to stand yep. there. Yep. He was just off his cross waiting at the Bay Marine to get his food, there was nobody else there and he wasn't standing right in the middle and the, the um, what do they call them, the COVID coppers or something like that, come, the, you know, yeah, security right. and the people in the mess come yeah. up and goes, hey, sir, you have to stand there, you know. He was a little bit foreign or something. Some accent was coming out when he was telling me the story and it was good because he was opening up on all of that. I made sure I was asking him questions because a lot of them have been very frustrated. They've changed. I know a few camps you're not even allowed to eat inside the mess and someone very close to us had to, they had to get their tea in a takeaway container and basically go and sit out on the grass and eat it. Yeah. And, you know, they're about to go and do 13-hour shift and they've yeah. got to go and, and they and they trying to cut their steak with plastic knives and forks yeah. and a polystyrene container and it goes through the container and, you know, yeah, and these yeah. are all the things. So they get out to work. What are they thinking about? They're not thinking about work. They're thinking yeah, about right. how shit all of this is. And um, yeah. But it's starting to ease. People have got through. And what was in the, the sphere of my control was I was saying to the real miner because he was driving out for a week working with people who were flying in, flying out from Brisbane, quite a yep. few of them, which was our biggest concern. It was all right up here, but, you know, what are they bringing with them? So I was saying just stay home. By You stay at your place for a few days till you get all the COVID germs off your stuff, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like don't come and see me straight after work like you normally yeah. do. So, um, But that was a challenging time for my mum because, her husband, Mad Baz, who's been on the episode, he um, he lives with her. So he's coming straight home, but he was coming straight in, leaving his stuff in the car, going straight and having a shower and getting changed. And they were the sort of things where we could, it was in our control. Okay, exactly. what are we going to yeah. do? Like my daughter was still working, but she'd come home. I was looking after my grandson so he didn't have to go to daycare and um, she was still working, but she'd come home and have a shower and wash her hair and get changed before she even came and saw us. Mm, so that was mm. a way of taking control. And, well, you know, you look at all the people who are working in hospitals and aged care and, you know, you've just – it's all we can do is yeah. what's in our sphere of control yeah. and hope everyone else is doing it too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely interesting times and I, I certainly think of uh, – uh, the situation in the states, and obviously the uh, you know uh, BLM Black Lives Matter. It's a um, it is something that has raised this head that needs to be 
dealt with and it causes so much conflict around it now. It's becoming quite a, a bubbling cauldron of, mm. of of resentment and everything. But it couldn't have happened at a worse time in the States because they were certainly not on top of COVID. Um, and then there is a slight argument here. It's like, well, we were just about at zero and just about at zero and it being at zero, yeah, it's, it's a hard call because I, I do feel that um, if there's things morally that need to be spoken about, Yes, there's a place for it. Would you have the effect by sending lots of emails? Probably not. So it's a really hard call, you know. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's a moral, it's an ethical one. Um, but, yeah, it's the potential of putting yeah, putting a, a, a nation at risk, you know. So because we had a good track record, it uh, becomes, yeah, becomes obvious when that those numbers start creeping up. Can you pinpoint it to a protest? Hey, there'll be, there'll be conspiracy theorists and that going on for many, many years later about what even caused COVID, you know, we'll, oh, we'll never get to the absolute bottom of it. We'll never get to the bottom of it. And it's outside of our control, as you mentioned. Exactly. Um, we, we can't control that. And so whilst we, sh- you know, should we be really be pointing our finger at China and saying, hey, you need to pay compensation, this, that, and the other, we don't even know it started there, you know, and we never will, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? And see, a big, a big part with mining is that a lot of our coal goes to China. Absolutely, yeah. But a lot of our coal goes to other countries as well. And you only have to go, well, here, you go to Kmart, the shelves are nearly empty. And it yeah. it just shows how much stuff we get from overseas. And oh, Woolies yeah. yesterday yeah. announced they're going to start making their own brand nappies in Australia. But will people yeah. buy them because they'll probably be dearer and stuff? I think it's making us look at the whole world that we mm. live in differently, which, mm. you know, could be a very good thing. The yeah, good th- changes so. that come out of it, hopefully. Yeah. So, well, no, But we big... can't control everything no. in all the I know countries. there was a big push recently for, um, and certainly for those that don't want to buy um, things made in China. And you know, mm. as, we, as we look at any foods and things we buy now, we haven't got time to be looking at every label to see where it's made. So the concept of having a couple of uh, aisles, which are purely only Australian-made products, allows people to walk in, shop from those aisles. If they're not happy, then take your time to read the other labels. But I think it's a great idea. Um, mm. But, you know, for the people that sort of say, hey, don't buy anything from China, it's like you try and live your life without buying something from China. You'd have to take away your flat screen. You'd have to take away, you know, so many things in your house. House is just to, yeah, you know, we, we, we don't have the infrastructure or the, um, you know, the, you know, the, the technology to, to make everything in Australia. So it's, you know, it's, yeah, certainly, certainly something to look at in the future and creating more production here in Australia, but doing it overnight, just not, not practical. Mm. And, and, you know, we're, global human humanity we're humanity yeah <laughs> and yeah. we still would like china to buy our stuff <laughs> absolutely so yeah. you can't just export and never yeah. import you know mm. it's so it's that's very global and it's we're, we're quite off topic but i've really enjoyed diving in deep like i said to you at the podcast at the podcast at the start yeah um my podcasts just go as long as they need to be because most yeah. people listening have got freaking hours to kill. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, and right. you, can hit, you can hit pause and come back and listen at any time to a podcast. But, um, yeah, they're great. I, I've really enjoyed this chat. We might start to wrap it up, I think. Yeah, for sure, so, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just run you through my final question. Well, and then yeah, there's one more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's quite relevant after that conversation. 
Sometimes, Rick, life can turn to shit. (laughs) What is your special place that you go to to handle tough times? What are the strategies you personally use to hang in there? What's your happy place, if you like? And Mm. I'm kind of guessing it might be the bush. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is um, definitely the bush. I just, I come back from about two and a half years out in the central desert um, just before Christmas. So we came back from the central desert, my wife and I, our boys were back here on the sunny coast looking after the house. Um, and to come back to, to come back to COVID after spending a lot of time in an indigenous community out there and being in the remote outback and taking tours and things, I was in my comfort space there for a long, long time. And to come back here to what seems like the hustle and bustle of the Sunshine Coast um, really shook me up and I really felt that I, I needed to have regular times where I'd just go back into the bush and just quieten my quieten my thoughts down a little bit and say, man, have I made the right decision coming back? But um, I know I have. I've got... I've got the divisions of what I do that have been on and off for many years now and knowing I'm back here to make a, a big difference in the lives of fathers and sons is important and I need to be in the right physical and mental headspace for that to happen. Uh, mm. And to me, I do need to go bush and that, that, is, my, that is my place for uh, getting, getting myself and my headspace together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us, Rick. Lovely um, pleasure. What's the best place for people to get in touch with you? If they go, hey, I love this guy, oh, um, <laughs> I can hear a few of the wives going, what's his number? What's his number, yeah. Red Mumsy? I'm sending yeah, the boys. <laughs> um, certainly. Well, you're, you're certainly a pretty good contact. You can always sort of link them through to me. But uh, I do have my uh, LinkedIn uh, platform, um, which would be, uh, yeah, easy to find me on there under, yeah, Rick, Rick Peterson. Um, and you'll see me with my bushy beard as the uh, profile picture. Um, I do have Facebook and Instagram. Um, and crazy enough, how's this? I've even got TikTok. Now, you probably <gasps> think, what the hell are you doing on TikTok? Because you can't dance. I've seen you. No. So, no, I don't dance. But um, I put up little little snippets on just different techniques of bushcraft things. And there was one there the other day. got, you know, I think about 8,000 8, follows by by teenagers in the, in the course of uh, about 24 hours, or less than 24 hours. So, this is a bit of a blow away for me. Um, so, I'm out there on a few different platforms, but... Yeah, Rick Rick J. Peterson, you'll find me there somewhere or look up uh, www.menofchangeaustralia. I think that's it. Yeah, I'll pop up there somewhere. Yeah, Yeah. they'll find me. And, of course, you can head to the show notes, which is madmumsy.com forward slash beers72, the number 72, and all of those links will be there. Um, I'll get – I'll stalk him out for you <laughs> and, put, yeah. and, and put everything there and a couple of pictures and stuff. Um, so thank you so much, Rick, for coming on the episode. Is there anything else that you would like to say to call this episode complete for you? No, I think we've had a, uh, a great chat. I really I love what you do, Leanne, and I am uh, yeah, feel privileged to be here and carry on the great work you do. And, uh yeah, to all the uh, the miners and co-related um, professions out there. Yeah, take take care and um, yeah, yeah. Look to look forward to maybe uh, finding out a little bit more about um, yeah, what you what you do. It's an interesting field. Yeah, awesome. Excellent. Thanks, Thank you very much, Leanne. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Pleasure. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, what do you reckon? 
How cool is he? Wow, I really enjoyed that conversation, especially talking about things I wasn't expecting at all. We could have kept going and going, talking about zombie preparations and jumping out of planes and spiders all over him. They weren't what I expected. Make sure I've stalked him out a little bit since we did that interview and follow him on Instagram for some awesome videos. He's really fit and some of the stuff that he does and he's got some knife throwing videos, which, you know, it's not really Mad Mumsy's thing, but it's pretty cool. Um, I haven't quite found the picture of him with all the spiders on him like he spoke about in the interview because I'm trying to get this episode out here for you, which you've now listened to. So give me an Adagirl boots. (laughs) Head over to menofchange.com.au to find out more. And of course, when you book for your weekend away or just a chat to see, you know, what what you can do for the guys in your life, tell him Mad Mumsy sent you or just say hi. Now on a, uh, you know, not such a fun note, COVID-19 is still going as I record this, it's nearly the middle of August uh, 2020 and Victoria are going through their second wave but it seems to be a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Who knows where it's all going to head but as our very own hard hat mentor says, this too shall pass. And on that note, Hard Hat Mentor, my sister, she's my real sister, right? A few people have asked me that lately. And yes, she's my real sister, Drewy, right? Leanne Drew, Dione Drew. And we are Steel Cap Sisters. I've dropped a few hints in past episodes, but now it's really starting to become a thing that we're taking action on. So be sure to find us on Facebook and follow our page so you won't miss out. There's a website as well that I'm working on, steelcapsisters.com, which is going to be a home base for both of us. And in the meantime, also head over to Hard Hat Mentor. Hard Hat, Hard Hat, pronounce your H's. <laughs> Hard Hat Mentor.teachable.com for all of Drewy's lovely videos and there's a couple of courses in there that are very COVID related as well. So tell her that Mad Mumsy sent you and if you know her, give her an elbow on the plane if you're sitting next to her, you know who I'm talking to. And finally, are you in the Beers With A Minor podcast group on Facebook? We hit the 200 members, members, is that the right word? 200 people that are inside the private Facebook group and they're getting all sorts of insider pictures and videos. I put one on there today, a picture of the mic, my mic picture, a picture of the mic picture, that's crazy, and <laughs> and my big computer screen as I was editing this very episode. And, of course, there was a beer in front of me. Because, you know, that's how Mad Mumsy rolls. So, until next time, stay safe, be real, be special, and have fun. For we only live once. Cheers. Oh, and please, share with your mates. And be careful jumping out of planes. (laughs) Cheers, guys.